Welcome to Growing Your Financial Advisory Practice Podcast by Snap Projections, episode 25. I'm your host, Patel Gromenski, and my goal is to interview experts to provide you with insights, strategies, and actionable tactics that you can start applying to grow your financial advisory practice today. For more information, head over to snapprojections.com podcast. Now, let's introduce today's featured guest. Since we're recording the 25th episode of the podcast, I have a special guest for you today. Today's guest is Jason Wan. Jason is a full-time instructor at Business Career College. He spends most of his time delivering web-based training to students across Canada, pursuing CFP certification. Jason is based in Edmonton. Prior to starting at Business Career College in 2006, Jason spent 14 years in the Canadian Armed Forces. In addition to teaching, Jason volunteers extensively, including providing pro bono financial planning services to disadvantaged populations. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Pavel. Congratulations on your 25th episode. I've actually been listening since episode one, so this is exciting for me. Super exciting. Great to hear. So, Jason, I'm super excited to have you on the podcast. I think we'll dive into some really interesting topics that we haven't actually covered on the podcast. So, let's get this started. Let's start where pretty much everybody starts. So, tell me a little bit more about Business Career College. What do you typically do? Who do you typically serve? I think the first thing that most people are surprised to learn is that we only serve the financial services community. So our students are all financial advisors, financial planners, insurance and investment folks covering that range. A little bit of stuff on the general insurance side, but mostly on the the life investments and financial planning side. Excellent. So yeah, take me back to the early days, actually. I I was really curious to actually know that you were in Canadian Armed Forces before, and I didn't know that. So what made you join the firm? What like Why you were doing what you were doing? Like why you were teaching advisors? Why you working with advisors? Right. So it's a family business. And what actually happened is my father was an insurance manager going way, way back. He was the mutual life guy in Humboldt, Saskatchewan in the mid-1980s. And he moved into management, as a lot of guys do. And in the mid-90s, he got seriously ill. He has uh, multiple sclerosis, and it actually put him out of commission for a couple of years. And he was on a long-term disability claim and found that uh, being off work wasn't working out for him. So he went looking for another opportunity, and he went into the training business and because he had always enjoyed that part of management. And then... He sort of grew that out, and there was some switches and changes in the direction that the business took, as you get so often, right, with early-stage businesses. For me, when I left the Army in 2006, I wasn't honestly sure what I was going to do. I didn't have a specific plan. I had done a lot of teaching in the Army. Canadian Army is small, so you end up doing a lot of different things. But my last five years was primarily spent training soldiers and doing some development around a new capacity that uh, we built out in the Army in the early 2000s. And given that, I had a little bit of training and development background. And leaving the Army at the time, we were looking for more instructors at Business Career College. And so I came on board. And it's going to be ironic, given some of the comments I think I'm going to make later on in the podcast, but really terribly ill-informed about what it meant to be coming into a family business and (laughs) that goes along with that. It's been great. It's been a great journey, but there's a real weight to coming into a family business that I don't think most people are prepared for when they set down that path. Okay, I want to talk about it right away. Let's not postpone this. (laughs) What do you mean by that? It's just the dynamics. It's just, uh, you know, the differences of opinion sometimes or, or that you have to basically meet at the dinner table and you know, and we have those kind of conversations about business, you can't really turn it off. Like, what's happening for you? All of those things, Pavel, that's right. It's 
the first thing is I think that, and again, it's been great. I don't want to sound negative about it at all, but it's essentially a job that you can't quit. You don't have any sort of mobility once you're in there. I'm now a shareholder. And actually just on Friday, as of the Friday here, I guess two Fridays before Christmas, actually Bob stepped out of the CEO role and I stepped into the CEO role. So we Congratulations. That's fantastic. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I don't know if it'll make a significant difference short term, but it was something that we did, I think, primarily to kind of firm up relationships. And it's one of those transitions that family businesses don't always have an easy time with. So at the time I said this, and I think it's important, but kudos to, to the senior folks in the business who are able to move their kids into those roles, right? That's a, that's a transition I don't always see go well. And that's an example of one of the dynamics you run into. But I know that we'll spend Christmas together. My parents will be at the house at uh, Christmas here, and there will be you know, some shop talk. <laughs> Definitely rolls rise a little bit when that happens. And you know, it's just you're, you're never quite detached from the business that way. Interesting. But I'm glad to hear that there's a lot of optimism. There's a lot of, you know, uh, things are going well. So, so that's good. Just a couple of challenges on the way. So let's talk about designations. So I was actually thinking about it a little bit. And so, so tell me, you know, how advisors decide on acquiring designations? I think you could mostly focus on CFPs, right? But you, as you said there is a CLU designation as well. What are the primary factors, you know, maybe stage of their business, maybe timing in terms of their career? What are the typical factors that people take into account, how they make those decisions? I wish, Pavel, that your discussion about making decisions was closer to what actually happens. I think for the most part, I would wager you see this with the decision, quote unquote, to, to change software providers, for example, too. I would wager that you see the same thing I do, that these decisions tend not to be maybe sort of long-term planning decisions, but more often there's a sale on somewhere, or I feel like I have a little bit of spare time, or I had one client who asked about the CFP, or I had a friend who said they had a really good experience with it, and so I decide that's the time to go and do it. I don't see it so much anymore, but going back five to 15 years, I found a lot of people who did it to meet their continuing education requirements. And they said, well, I can kind of kill two birds with one stone here. I'll get CE credits and I will also pursue the designation. I, I wish that there was more, I'll say, intentionality in the decision to take CFP or CLU. I certainly have my thoughts about what the ideal time to do it is, but I don't think it's the same for everybody. So let's talk about it. I'm actually really curious. So what do you think? I mean, you've been teaching advisors for, for, for a long time now, right? So what do you think would be the, the more optimal path? the more deliberate approach that typically that you've seen from the cases that you've dealt with that works well? What is the good timing, I guess? Given that I primarily work in a commission-driven world, most of my clients earn a commission based on sale of products. Even if you're in a fee-based or a fee-only model, I still think this is largely true, that your first responsibility has to be to build a business. And you have to get to a point where you can actually take time away from your business to go and do classes and commit in earnest to those classes. There are exceptions. There are people who are really good self-studiers and who can do this earlier. But I find for most people, the optimal thing to do is to at least put in that first two years on your business, learning your business, learning who your clients are, figuring out your model, seeing some clients, sitting down with some folks. And the risk there, of course, is that you're going to make some mistakes in those two years, and that's difficult. But at the same time, once you're that, let's say, two to five years in, I think that's the optimal time to pursue the CFP. 
And the reason is because you've had that mix. You understand your business a little bit. You've sat down with clients. You're probably making enough revenue by that time to actually pay for the program and to support some time away from your business. You probably have a little bit of passive income by that point. If you wait longer than five years, I find the challenge here is that then you're so set in your ways that it becomes difficult to break away from that. And I certainly see advisors who are 15, 20, 25 years in the business. And I just, I had a call last week from a fellow, fellow out in uh, Newfoundland who is just starting the program for, I think it's his second time. And this is pretty common where somebody started it, you know, a decade ago or so. Mm-hmm. And he calls me up and he says, look, I'm 25 years in the business. I really don't know if I'm doing the right thing here. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to engage in the program. But we had a little conversation about it. And for him, the biggest challenge is going to be shifting things around in his life so that he can actually find time to engage in his studies. Very mm-hmm. common once you get into that, let's say, 10 plus years in the business. Right. Excellent. So a couple of questions here, because so it sounds like you need to be in the business at least for maybe those two years. So it's, of course, you can figure it out, as you said, the model, and hopefully we'll talk about it later today, too. And uh, you had a chance maybe to make those mistakes, right, uh, in a business, and you're kind of more, I would say, comfortable with those highs and lows as you're running your own business, because a lot of advisors do that, right? Now, so how long is the program typically? And what is the, let's say, weekly commitment that would be, that you would advise that people probably have at least, they need to have at least a certain amount of hours a week to be able to get the outcome that they want from the program? Agreed. I, w- I just want to qualify my statement too about that minimum two years in the business because there is an entire different path people can take. We don't see it too much in Western Canada, but in Southern Ontario, for example, there are a ton of great post-secondary institutions delivering training related to the CFP. And you may find people who came through one of those programs, a pure post-secondary program, who have no prior industry experience and still really can get great benefit from those programs. So I don't want to sound like I'm somehow knocking those degree and diploma programs that send people away with most of the work done towards the CFP. To actually answer your question, thanks for letting me digress there, but to actually answer your question, I tell my students generally that the program is going to take them somewhere between 18 to 24 months from front to back. You really have to have that much time set aside on your calendar. And during that 18 to 24 months, your weekly workload is going to vary, but somewhere between five to 10 hours per week. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit lumpy. It's not a perfect five to 10 hours per week, but about that over that two years. And cost is going to be somewhere around $7,000, give or take, over that 18 to 24 months. Now, the program is changing. There are big changes coming to the program starting in 2020, and we don't know yet exactly what those changes will look like. The Financial Planning Standards Council has indicated that they want to keep costs and time commitments relatively on par with what they are now, but still a year and a half or a year and a bit away, not that far, and we'll see what it looks like come the new year in 2020. Absolutely. And actually, we had Ryan Lamontan just in the previous episode talk, and we talked a little bit about the changes in FPSC and the FP Canada, of course, and so on. So this is going to be very interesting. Of course, that's, you know, we'll see how this is going to play out. Okay, so we have the cost. We have 18, 24 months, just to quickly recap, five to 10 hours. So it's not a massive investment of time, but, you know, it's not it's not nominal, right? And uh, you need to be pretty serious about it, right? You need to probably have somebody who is pretty committed that they, they want to spend this much amount of time because this is not, you know, two, three months, right? So 
talk about a little bit of the commitment because I want to make sure that like who would be your ideal? Of course, there are many paths. And as you indicated earlier, I mean, there's paths, for example, you can have the designation maybe complete the certification completed earlier, right? You don't need this two years in the industry. But who would be your ideal student, let's say, who you would want to have in your class? My ideal student is somebody who is able to block aside that time. So that person has to be willing to block that aside. In two to three months, it's funny you mention that because that's kind of what you see is a lot of people are able to commit for a couple of months and then something comes up, something changes in the business. You get an unexpected life event, an assistant quits, or you buy a block of business or whatever. It's often that two to three months is kind of the tell. And generally, if somebody gets past that, then I would suggest they're likely to finish up the program. So that first is just that they understand the commitment and that they will be able to adjust to whatever, and everybody's going to have something. They will be able to adjust to whatever change it is that happens, right? You, you know, I actually had an email correspondence with a student this morning who she's about 10 months into the program and she's about, uh, I think now, five or six months into her pregnancy. All right. <laughs> that's, that's a it's a it's a more important concern than getting through the program and I understand that that's going to have some trade-offs. As far as the ideal student have in the classroom, I really want students who feel like they have something to learn. If you are there just to get the three letters behind your name, then you know that can work for some people. Some people will have success pursuing the CFP just to prove that they can get the three letters or sometimes they have a an employer setting a requirement to get the three letters, but to come to class and have it be a positive experience, you have to feel like you have something more to learn. If you feel like you've learned everything, that there's nothing more for you to accomplish, then you're going to be frustrated in class. You want to have engaged students who want to learn. Excellent. Okay, so just as we were talking about those ideal students, so what do you think, or in your experience, what do you think advisors typically misunderstand when it comes to acquiring their designations, right? Is this the, the things that you talked about earlier about just having those three three letters, or is there, uh, let's say, you witnessed maybe there's a certain set of expectations and you have to deal with this at the beginning of, or maybe even prior to starting a program, so, so they have the right expectations going into the program? The expectations going into the program, I think a lot of people aren't ready for what the exams will look like. The CFP program, the Financial Planning Standards Council, has done, a, in my opinion, a fantastic job of building out really good, fair, competency-based exams. And this is quite different from what people are accustomed to. So right from day one, I try to work with students to prepare them for what the exams will ultimately look like, which, you know, I know that we don't teach to the exam. That's a critique of, of teaching methods. But this exam, because it's competency-based, you're really teaching to client scenarios, and the exam tests client scenarios. Teaching to the exam here is actually what we should be doing. Teaching to a good exam is actually a valid approach, although I don't really present it like that in the classroom, but that ultimately everything is about getting people ready for the exams because the exams are so good in terms of what they actually test. Excellent. We'll come back to the changes in the FPC maybe a little later, but let's talk about, about the point in time when the advisor has their CFP, maybe their CLUs at the same time. And, and of course, they have this certification and they're fine, they're progressing in their business, their career. What about other, the other part of the education that is non-designation related, or not, not designation based? Like, let's talk about that because that's a big one, right? Of course. So, and lots of questions around this. But you know, what are your generally in your thoughts? What advisors can do to basically improve your skills? What they should be doing? What they're not doing? What do they think? I do find in Canada that we have a little bit of designation envy 
I find it's a very common thing where people say, I only want to take education if there's a designation that I can achieve that's going to get me that, that education. So I, I find there's this kind of this priority where priority one is CE credits. Am I going to get CE credits for it? Priority two is, am I going to get a designation for it? And priority three is, will it help me to give better advice to my clients? And I think that that's sort of a subconscious thing that we enter into. We might blame a little bit of our regulatory or compliance models for that, where you know the compliance models require that you get so many continuing education credits, and that's often a little bit nebulous. The Folks who are close to their deadlines are often confronted with problems to find the right CE credits to match whatever they need. I think if we flip that order, though, I think as people hear that, they would say, yeah, that's kind of what happens. But I think if we flip that order and we say, first and foremost, the education that I'm seeking should be designed to solve a problem that clients of mine have or a problem that I have in in dealing with my clients. I think that should always be the first and foremost. This can be a little bit of a problem with both CFP and CLU. I think what happens with both CFP and CLU is that people pursue them because they are the sort of, especially on the insurance side, right? The the CLU on the insurance side, CFP more broadly across the industry, people look at those as those, you know, those key designations. But I don't think everybody is necessarily better off for having the CFP or CLU. I think the vast majority of people will benefit a lot from CFP, but there still has to be a reason to do it. Right. And I think FPSC and FP Canada, actually, as, as we go forward, is addressing at least some of the concerns that we've seen because there hasn't been really a lot of information on the practical application of the knowledge. There's a lot of technical knowledge. There's, there's not a lot of practicality in, in that knowledge, right? So, so that's, what, that's the gap that we've seen, actually, at least from our perspective. I don't know if you can confirm that. What do you think that? At the same time, I'm going to ask you about new designation too, right? So the FPSC certificate level one is, is, is not going to be longer there. There's new designation. So two questions in one, what do you think? These have all been interesting changes. These are going to have a big impact on our business and how we run our business. I actually, just before we came on the call this morning, I was spending my morning grading capstone course assignments. And that capstone course will go away starting in 2020. And it'll be replaced by kind of two sets of courses. There will be the Introduction to Professional Ethics course, which will be administered by FP Canada Institute. And then there will be two different versions of the professional education program, which will be more of the fundamental skills or the the non-technical skills associated with operating a financial planning business or with dealing with clients in a financial planning role. I'm looking forward to seeing what those courses look like. Those will both be offered by FP Canada Institute. And what that does is it sort of pushes educators like myself to deal with the more technical side. Now, that being said, my intention, I've already been in communication. I have a sort of stable of contract instructors that we use, some really great people in that group. Actually, one of your former uh, podcast guests, uh, Adam Schachter, is in that group. So shout out to Adam. Mm -hmm. And um, reached out to those folks and said, hey, look, this program is changing. We really want to be delivering good competency-based education right from day one. So as much as FP Canada Institute will take care of some of that professional skills training, we're going to make sure that our students get to those programs well-equipped to deal with those. Excellent. I think, well, lots of changes. So we'll see how this is going to all pan out, I guess. 
Another question about just uh, the teaching advisors. What is the most difficult for you in teaching advisors? Let's talk about that a little bit. I think the biggest challenge is, I think this is probably a problem for all educators across the board, but people don't know what they don't know. And I'll use, I like Canada Pension Plan as an example of this. I think a lot of people figure that they know more than enough about Canada Pension Plan. You know, you get to age 65 and you can start the pension and then early and late options. And there is a survivor's benefit and some other odds and ends there. But in my classes, we spend about three and a half hours just digging into the Canada pension plan. And people come away from that, I think, with a real understanding of just how many different possible outcomes there are with Canada pension plan and how much benefit there is to understanding the Canada pension plan. And I'm surprised then after class, and I like this, I find that it's good to get that level of understanding, but a lot of the knowledge you're going to have about Canada Pension Plan is, I think, best if it's sort of on demand, where you have this one complicated scenario, and you can email somebody, you say, I I know there's something to this, I know I have to dig in a little bit further. There's so many things like that that we cover, whether it's, you know, Canada Pension Plan, or whether it's the finer workings of insurance contracts, or whether it's all the ins and outs of the RRSP when you get beyond just contributions and withdrawals. I find that it's just people don't realize how much they don't know. And that, I think, keeps them away from the program. I think a lot of people feel like they kind of know enough to solve most client problems. And the challenge I have there is that a lot of times there are deeper levels of knowledge that people aren't even aware exist. Right. And that's, that's, that's a real concern, right? Because they may be providing advice without even knowing that there's another level out there. And I think that's a really critical part about financial planning and a difficult part of, about financial planning because, I mean, you want to have the main goals of the client in the forefront. Always, you, they have to be right front and center in front of you, in front of the client. We should be talking about that. However, there's a lot of complexity. So, so sometimes those people might be, as I understand, they might, it might be difficult. They might be simply afraid of, uh, of going to those rabbit holes when, let's say, there are some really finer details Details, let's say, of Canada Pension Plan. But however, when they're important, I mean, you need to talk about it with a client, right? And I think that's something you probably face quite a bit too on your side. You always have that trade off with software like Snap, where you're trying to balance out how complicated you want to get versus having a presentable, understandable format. I'm sure you fight this battle all the time. Yes, I, we, yes, we do. <laughs> and it's uh, and you know what? It's a it's it's a product decision really for us to not to be the most complex software on the market because if you're really dealing with very simple situations, you should be able to deliver and deal with those very simple situations quickly. And what happens, especially with dealing with a very sophisticated software, with very complex software, you very quickly spend time on those very technical, small technical details that may matter, let's say, 30, 40 years from now on, but they are not as important right now. So it's definitely a fine balance. And sometimes we were being pulled by, by existing clients. Let's say we would like to have a little bit more detail, or some of the existing clients are saying, well, you know what, this level is actually, detail is good, and we don't need to, please don't complicate the software, basically, for us, right? So this is definitely an interesting perspective. Okay, so let's talk about about some other things here. So I know that you have some exciting projects in your business right now. So let's talk about that because I think it relates to education. We have a lot of exciting stuff going on. And a lot of this I can actually tie into about a year ago now, almost a year ago, we made a decision to hire a full-time technology person. And this is something that I was influenced in even by my early meetings with you, Pavel, right? I, I started to see the, the benefits of having that in-house technology competency. And we moved one of our staff over to a pretty project-heavy role, which has 
enabled us to roll out more types of new offerings. The first thing that's directly relevant to this is we now have our own podcast live, and I'm not trying to compete with the great work you're doing here, Pavel. We're in a, in a different world. I'm happy to promote it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, We have the CE Drive podcast, and episode two will be out by the time this goes live. Maybe even episode three, we'll see what your release schedule takes you to. But that podcast is financial planning discussions with financial planners. So what we do there is I have generally it's past students and I'll bring them on and we'll talk about a couple of specific financial planning scenarios, things that they've seen with clients. And then what's unique with that podcast is you can actually get back to my continuing education credits, you can get CE credits by listening to it. And the intention here is to create some efficiencies in that CE credit world so that advisors can focus their more formal education on what I had talked about earlier, that being go and get education that's actually going to help solve client problems. That being said, even with the first podcast, it's out now. And I had an email yesterday from a former student who said, hey, I actually just had a client who's in a very similar situation. And here's a couple more questions I have on it. So it was nice to see that. That's the kind of education I'm looking for people to get out of that podcast. I just have to say that I'm super excited to actually have you doing the podcast because there's no better person, I think, that should be doing actually this kind of podcast. So I think this is, there's definitely a gap in the market. So this is, this is really exciting. Okay. Is there anything else? Yeah, we have lots going on. Lots. So much. So I also have a lot of people will know of our YouTube videos. A lot of my past students know us from YouTube. We're, I guess, as far as financial planning videos in Canada, we're a presence there. We're closing in on 2 million views now on all of our videos put together. And I'm actually rolling out a new video series. And I really want to give props to a couple of folks here. I hope it's okay. But Absolutely. a couple of managers out in Atlantic Canada, Peter O'Neill and Jim Sullivan, who helped me over the summer to work through, say, we had 43 videos in this series, around 10 minutes per video. And it's the story of three business owners who start a business together, grow that business go through some of the planning issues associated with growing that business, eventually sell their business and retire. And it's quite in-depth. It's really sort of a CLU light type of thing. And the intention there was to give people some exposure to some of the ideas in in the CLU course without necessarily actually going through the the whole course. But people watching the video series will, uh, I think in many cases, want to dig a little bit further into some of the concepts that show up there. So that's going to be live early in 2019, and it will have continuing education credits attached to it as well. We're in the business of doing CE credits, and as much as my earlier comments might have sounded like I'm not a fan of that, it's something that people need, and we do want to address client needs, right? Absolutely. So this is very exciting. Actually, uh, Jason, I want to go back to one thing that actually uh, I want to talk a little bit more with you, because you mentioned that there is one important thing that advisors need to actually consider as part of their business, which is basically the, their business model, right? So I want to go back to that because, of course, there are many different business models and depends what kind of organization you're with. I know that you've seen a lot of different options on the market. So let's talk a little bit more about that. So what kind of different models have you seen out there in the market and what are the sort of pros and cons? all those different different models. So I'm not sure how far into this we want to get in preparation for this, because I knew you were going to ask me that question. I listed out, I think on my list here, I have 10 different sort of types of clients that I see. And then within each of those, there would be some further delineations that you could make. But I do think most people, and it's much like my comments around education earlier, you've had a couple of guests on your podcast that have actually been exceptional this way, where they really did, I think, go down a path of 
saying, what business model do I want to be in? And they've built their business with an end in mind. And I know some folks that have done that. I don't want to sound like that never happens in this industry, but I find the vast majority of folks, they'll get through that first maybe 6, 10, 12 months and then maybe start to realize that there are other ways that they could be running their business. And it's the nature of how recruiting happens in this business that a lot of the recruiting is done on a on a very sort of casual or you know, I know a son of a client who's looking for something or, you know, a guy I used to play hockey with who's looking for something, right? A, a lot of that kind of recruiting happens. And I think that's good. I think it's good to come into the business with somebody that you know and somebody you're comfortable with and somebody you can deal with. So I want to be careful here. I don't want to sound like I'm you know, coming down from the mountain saying you must do it this way. I, I think that the one of the things that, that we sometimes don't realize until we're knee deep in it is that there is a, a mix of models out there. Right. Yeah. So let's talk about some of them because, I mean, of course, there's some major ones. Let's start maybe with with the simpler ones like fee-for-service, right? And let's let's talk a touch about different ones because I think from our listeners, at least we sometimes ask, especially from the younger folks, we hear that they're considering different models. Lots of fee-for-service, especially in the last six months. I don't know if you see this kind of uh, trend as well, but that's what we've seen. Let's talk about, let's touch on different ones. Yeah. So fee-for-service is a good place to start. It's certainly the one that gets a lot of focus in the sort of national press right? You, know, you read the Globe and Mail, and certainly they're big fans of fee-for-service. And I do have some good clients, some, some good folks that sit on that fee-for-service side. I like to make the distinction here uh, when we talk about fee-for-service. I like to say fee-only or fee-based. I think that that's a, a fair distinction to make. And you've had some folks on the call, Diana or Deanna, I can't remember her name, out of Calgary, who was, uh, yeah, yeah, was fee-only, for example where no product at all, no assets under management, just straight up charge a fee for a financial planning result. And I think that's one way to look at that. I I think there's a lot of people dealing on a fee-based model. And I actually think that the use of the word fee in those two models is a little bit, I don't know, maybe not quite misleading, but it makes it sound like those two things are not that far apart. But I would suggest that there's a significant difference between fee-only and fee-based. And nothing wrong with fee-based models. I think they're perfectly fine. I don't have any issue with any of the models that, I, that I'm aware of. There's some, I think that whatever model you choose, you have to be aware of where there are potential conflicts, where your client might do better in a different model, where you are using a model that matches how you would like to be choosing clients and dealing with those clients. I think that's the key. I don't think that, uh, unlike what I think we sometimes see in the aforementioned national press, I don't think there's one that's ideal in all circumstances or better in all circumstances or, or whatever the case. So yeah, then you have the the fee-based, and fee-based would essentially be where if you've got, let's say, a million dollars plus with me, I'm going to charge you a half percent of assets under management for every year. You don't do any sort of a transactional model, just purely based on fees. And that type of model, of course, lends itself best to folks who carry either an investment license of some sort of mutual funds or IROC license. And lots of people in those models today are moving more and more of their money over to discretionary managed portfolios. And you've had some folks on the podcast who talked about using discretionary money managers. Then you get the question of licensing. And I find most of my clients come at this with both an insurance and investment license. That's probably 80% of my clients. And that would be, you know, that sort of eat what you kill model. I mean, that's what our industry is primarily based on, right? That's what a, a lot of the financial services industry is based on. 
think that's a, a perfectly fine model. Again, you have to be aware of where that creates potential conflicts for your business or conflicts for your clients, and clients should be well coached about those potential conflicts. But I think if you can cross those hurdles, it's it's perfectly fine. And even within that world, then you have folks who are really independent, folks who would have a relationship to a managing general agency and a relationship to a mutual funds dealer, but really are free to brand their services how they want and they can hire assistants or, or associates or whatever as they see fit. And then you have the captive side, folks who have a manager that they report to and they have to meet certain deliverables and their branding is typically tied to some nationally recognized brand. So, you know, we start to see a bunch of different models. I can keep going if you want, Pavel. I'm not sure. I think there's uh, the one model that is kind of interesting to me because in the past, especially in a fee-based, and let's clarify, just assets under management, right? In that kind of model, typically the, the smaller clients were causing, let's say, potentially an issue. Let's say, let's say you're dealing with a client and they, they have children and they don't have almost any assets, right? But they want to be taken care of by you as an advisor as well. And in that kind of situation, I've seen there's some new, new mixed models that came up, right? So, of course, I mean, there's a model of here's assets, assets under management, for example. There's maybe fee for planning, right? And at the same time, especially last year, when when the, the, I would say the importance of planning grew very, very quickly, at least from our perspective, more and more advisors I see start charging fees for planning. So do you see something like this on your end as well? Do you see this, this kind of transition as well? I certainly see more interest in it. I think what's happening is a lot of people who have been operating as, as fee-only or fee-for-planning models have kind of come to the forefront now a little bit or have gotten a little bit more vocal about what they're doing. I know a few folks who are in the business on that traditional side who will now at least offer to their clients a fee to do a plan. Let's say, look, if you want, we don't have to do any product transactions. What I find though in reality, and I'm sure that people will take me to task on this to an extent, but what I find in reality is that a lot of those people say when they present that to a client, the client may actually choose to go with a a more traditional commission-based model anyways, because the client looks at that and says, well, I'm not excited about writing a check or whatever. Now, some of that might be to do with pricing or presentation. I, I don't know. I don't actually get to see those conversations happen. But I find as much as there's more of that, maybe that catalog type offering happening, when I talk to my clients, at least about it, the financial planners and financial advisors that I deal with, I find that they're not getting, if they if they have that sort of, I can do a fee for service plan, or I can do a commission-based insurance and investments model, what they're reporting to me is that they're primarily still seeing people choose the traditional commission-based model. Right. That, of course, makes sense. And of course, I think the market is changing, but I think there is certain inertia in the market as well. And Canada is moving slowly, as many of, of the guests on the podcast mentioned in the past. And uh, so I know we could, I have a lot of other questions on the on the models, and we I'm sure we could probably talk about it for another hour. But let's maybe wrap this up for now, because and if anybody has more questions, I know you spend a lot of time looking at the different, different models. They can talk, contact you directly. And if they have any specific questions, I mean, you have a really great perspective on seeing how many uh, people in market doing what kind of models what works what doesn't work so if anybody has questions then they can ask you directly hopefully and okay so a lot of exciting things so the podcast c drive will link it up in the, in the show notes of course so if anybody's really excited about just taking a look i would really encourage them to take a look at the podcast subscribe and of course the youtube channel as well will link it up in the show notes as well but there's two other questions before we wrap up jason here so i know you ask for a lot of advice 
But really, this podcast is all about growing the advisor practice. Do you have any parting wisdom for the listeners? I think this won't be a surprise given some of my earlier comments. I would really love to see people plan out their education the same way that they help their clients to plan for retirement. To really think about what am I trying to accomplish? Where do I have pain points or gaps? What's missing here? And how can I address that? And I would like to actually encourage people to look in some unconventional areas for their training. For example, if you're looking to brush up on family law, I find a lot of people, let's say I want to brush up on family law, I probably look within the sort of traditional insurance continuing education offerings but you might find really great family law offerings from some law firms. A lot of law firms do road shows and train to those topics. Or you might find that your provincial legal education society, whatever it happens to be, I know in Alberta, we have the LISA, the Legal Education Society of Alberta. There'll be somebody within whoever takes care of actually getting lawyers called to the bar that does great education. Same on the accounting side or business succession side. There's tons of stuff out there that you might not consider in traditional education realms, but it would be really great education. I know I've sent quite a few advisors in this last uh, year or so to some really good farm succession activities that are actually put on by the Alberta government, which maybe you wouldn't expect as a source of training, but that's I've received nothing but great reviews from people that have gone to those sessions. Or Another place to look that would be a little bit unconventional is to look south of the border. You'd find lots of really good financial planning conferences. And, you know, you talked about the slow uptake on fee-only models in Canada. And we even heard this from, again, I won't remember his name, but the fellow that used to be with Amex that was on your podcast before. I think he talked about going south of the border to learn a little bit about how... Trevor Vanessa, yeah. Thanks, yeah, yeah. I should have written those names down, Pavel. That's ignorant of me. I apologize to the previous guests there. But yeah, the idea that you can look in the United States for education offerings, there's a very well-developed financial planning community down there. There's about six times as many CFPs in the United States as there are in Canada, which is going to bring some additional depth to that. They've had the CFP designation in the United States since 1968, if I'm not mistaken, and we're only since 1997 in Canada, so another 30 years of, of history there as well. This is great advice, Jason. I think I'm really glad that you brought it up. And anybody, if uh, you have any questions for Jason, Jason, I know Jason personally, he's a really nice guy. He's going to answer your questions. So so if you have any questions around those especially non-standard ways of acquiring education and becoming better at, at serving your clients, just talk to Jason directly. And on that note, Jason, if anyone wants to get a hold of you, how would they do that? What's the best way to reach? Probably the easiest thing is LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn and I'm Jason Watt CLU on LinkedIn. There's a whole busload of Jason Watts floating around. So Jason Watt CLU, or you can email me uh, Jason at businesscareercollege.com. And then we have uh, Facebook and Twitter and all that good stuff too, all under the Business Career College branding. But uh, LinkedIn is the, is the best. LinkedIn is the best. Excellent. We'll link it up in the show notes. Jason, Jason, thank you very much. I really enjoyed the conversation about designation education and good luck with the podcast. And again, uh, we'll link it up in the show notes. So if anybody wants to listen to your podcast, subscribe, then they can do that. Thanks very much for your time. And I look forward to our next meeting in person. Thanks very much for the opportunity, Pavel. I really enjoyed it. And great work on your podcast too. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.
And that's it for this episode. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at podcast at snapprojections.com. And if you're enjoying the show and want more of the amazing guests sharing incredibly valuable knowledge, head over to iTunes and leave us a great review, which helps us get discovered. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. Bye.